Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Andrew. And I am Caleb and welcome back to our third installment on Ellie Parker. In May of 1865, Ely Parker returned to Washington, D.C., and he and Grant met with the president again, President Johnson this time. Parker was still very angry about the death of Lincoln and is said to have said at a military parade, you white men are Christians and you may forgive murder, but I'm of a race that never forgives the murder of a friend which I find this quote kind of interesting because he was a Christian. He, his father was a preacher and he was a member of, a, of an Anglican church later in his life. So, but I think it's the point is getting across that he really harbored some bitterness towards uh, the Confederates. If you remember from our last episode, a couple of weeks before this, when Abraham Lincoln is talking to him on how he wants to help his people, I think Parker was really excited to have a president that actually cared about the Indians. And I think he believed Honest Abe when he said that. This must have been a, you know, on top of him considering Abraham Lincoln a friend, but also all of a sudden his plans for the future for his people have just been crushed with the death of Abraham Lincoln. And we don't know what would have been uh, had Lincoln been able to finish out his second term. Lincoln definitely had some very questionable tactics dealing with uh, Western tribes during the Civil War. He worked some people to do some, some bad stuff. That being said, I think that Lincoln really did have an appreciation for the, the Iroquois nations and really did want to, to help them. In the following months, Parker remained at Grant's side. He helped shield him from the, the masses, uh, for a word we would use today, the paparazzi, the general was the hero of the war. He's the one that got Lee to surrender. Everywhere he went, people mobbed him. They literally had to, to beat people away when Grant was trying to get some sleep on a train. People were breaking windows just trying to get in and shake his hand. They said that Grant's hand was like crippled because so many people wanted to shake and talk to him. As they uh, toured the north, Grant and his family came to Niagara Falls to rest and recuperate. And Parker said, I'll take your kids. And which is always great when somebody offers to do that. He just takes the kids and takes them to the Tonawanda Reservation for some days to stay at his sister's house. In the fall of that year, he was appointed to a commission to serve on a board to help with negotiating with a dozen or so Native American nations that had joined the Confederacy. We didn't even have a chance to talk about this, but there were all these indigenous nations in the South that joined the Confederacy. Uh, many of them had slaves as well, and they were really sympathetic to the Southern cause. They were intertwined economically and politically. So here's a, a little history tidbit fact for you, Caleb. Do you know who the last general to surrender in the Confederacy was? Um, no idea. Neither did I, but I put it in the notes so I would remember. He was a Cherokee brigadier general named Stand Wadey. Must be the South were a little more lenient with their commissions. <laughs> yeah, really. But he, he commanded hundreds of troops and uh, led people around on a wild goose chase, refusing to surrender even after the Confederacy had surrendered. Like I said, this is June 23rd. This is a full two or three months after uh, everything has wound down. It also kind of sets the stage for, you know, because we all know about like the the Indian Wars in the 1880s and stuff like that in the Old West you can kind of see how a lot of that, this conflict never really ended, this Cherokee general. 
with America. Like they eventually make some sort of peace, but you can tell that it's going to be a shallow peace and that will be trouble for the next several decades. In um, 1866, one of Grant's top officers, Colonel Bowers, was killed tragically by a train. And why it's so tragic is he was a close friend of Parker and Grant. You know, he was one of the general staff and they were all on a train and Grant got on the train and realized he left something like back at the hotel, something completely not important, handkerchief, a book, a letter from his mom, something like that. And he just said, oh, darn, I accidentally left that back there. Oh, well. And Bowers, without saying anything to Grant, slipped away and he was going to run back and grab it because he was trying to be a good a good friend and a good underling to the general. In doing so, he ended up, if you can picture all these train tracks with all the trains going every which way, he got trapped in between trains going different directions and he was killed and crushed. So Grant talks to this man a couple minutes before and then, you know, he slips away. Grant never told him to go back and get it. And then people say, a man was just killed on the tracks. And he says, oh, that's terrible. And then it comes in that it was his friend that had fought with him through the whole Civil War, and he was dead, just like that. Grant was so depressed that he told Parker that he was not going to be able to attend the funeral. Lots of people say things like that, and then the funeral date comes, and guess who was there? Grant and Parker and all the staff were there for Colonel Bowers and his family. Parker was promoted to Grant's number one. Grant also promoted Parker through a loophole that he saw where they could try to take Parker's rank. You see, Parker originally enlisted and received his commission to the volunteer army. We don't really have that type of army anymore, but at the time, you might have a regiment that was actually paid for by the government, and then you may also have a private one where a bunch of rich people raise the money, and then you may have another one that's volunteer. It's just people bring their own stuff. Their family members pay for their supplies. So because Parker got his commission as an officer in the volunteer army, Grant saw that, wait a minute, they might try to pull a fast one on Parker here and dissolve that volunteer army. And if they dissolve that volunteer army, Parker loses his commission as an officer. So Parker was given a second lieutenant commission, which is the lowest For those of you who know military rank, that's the lowest starting officer rank. So he promoted him to second lieutenant, commissioned in the Federal Army, and then immediately promoted him to captain, and then major, and then colonel, and then, get this, Andrew, brigadier general. So he just kept submitting pieces of paperwork one after the other, promoting him all on the same day. Yes. So he ultimately, you know, he finished at a colonel, so he, he had to take a huge demotion to second lieutenant in order to be promoted up to a general. This now, like when he gets his pension and his retirement for the rest of his life, he can now collect as a brigadier general, as opposed to having it stripped away from him through a loophole. And this promotion here makes him the highest ranking native person in the United States military up until that point. Uh, We mentioned all the way back in our Revolutionary War series that Lewis Cook was made a lieutenant colonel and that he was the highest rank from that point. But Ely Parker now has gone a full two ranks above that. And then he's called upon to do some more work. He helped serve on the commission, like I said, to help negotiate with these tribes that had joined the Confederacy. 
And when I say Confederacy, I'm talking about Southern Confederacy. I know it's confusing because we're, we're dealing with two different confederacies here that are very different. But the U.S. government told these other nations in the South and West that they need new treaties because they took up arms against the United States. Therefore, we, we need some kind of new thing because these old treaties are null and void. And they also told them, oh, and by the way, you guys need to outlaw slavery on your indigenous lands. Because a lot of them could see this as a loophole where, okay, the, the southern states now have slavery abolished because of the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment. But remember, it's sovereign land. So just like you can make your own laws, what if these reservations and their indigenous nations say, well, we think that slavery is okay here. That could, that could be a big problem. So the stipulation to do it legally is they need to put in the treaty that they're going to make sure that they don't have any slavery on the reservations. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's a legal framework to make sure that this issue doesn't crop up again. Because you could just see all Confederates trying to, okay, on the reservation we could have slavery, so I'm going to give you guys a bunch of money and I'm going to build my plantation here and I can have slaves. So it was a big deal. It was a big sticking point. Parker was on this commission mainly to help build trust. If they, if they saw someone that was indigenous and working on these treaties, they could maybe trust the U.S. government a little bit more. I know that's, that's a stretch. Parker starts helping negotiate these things, and uh, soon treaties are being signed all over the place. And many of them, Parker is signing himself, acting as a de facto U.S. diplomat. After this, Parker uh, in 1866 is sent to inspect all the forts in Tennessee and Kentucky and Mississippi because we've got the war's over now, but do we need, we're spending a lot of money garrisoning troops here in the South. Do we need to decommission some of these forts to save money? And after inspecting them, he writes back and says, I think the troops need to stay in the South. Do not withdraw. He said, the freed slave needs protection from the racist policies of the Southerners. These are words that he writes. He's like, don't leave. They're, they're passing laws down here to, to still try and keep these people down. You need, you need a force down here to make sure that this place doesn't fall apart again. So while uh, Parker is dealing with these new treaties with the other indigenous nations, he also decides it might be a good time to settle down. He's getting on in the years and he's successful now. So he decides that he is going to be married. This became big news in Washington, D.C., Andrew, because his betrothed was 18 years old and she was a total babe. She was known as one of the most attractive women in Washington. And also, uh, she was white, 21 years older than her. The girl's name was Minnie Sackett, and her father was killed in the war. And because of this, General Grant himself was going to give her away at the wedding. Um, I, I don't see this in the notes, but I happen to know that her father was one of the heads of uh, Indian Affairs. Parker visited Grant's house on the night before the wedding and borrowed a sash for the ceremony. The next day, Tuesday, December 17th, 1867, Hundreds and hundreds of citizens show up to watch. I imagine there were also uh, troublemakers there, but Ely wasn't one of them. Minnie was said to have been in tears, and her mother was furious. I bet she was. Newspapers started uh, running speculation ads, and gossip was spreading all over town. No one knew what happened to General Parker. He just disappeared 
and everybody assumed the wedding was off or there was some scandal. Some reports that uh, he'd run away with the chambermaid and married her most trusted friend. Another uh, said that he was seen in Baltimore. And another report, Andrew, was uh, actually we heard that his body was found in the river and he was murdered. Other people said uh, he got so drunk he got in a fight and got killed. No one could find him. Uh, Parker's sister telegraphed the reservation in New York to see if he was there. And uh, after two days, uh, he turned up. And to this day, nobody is 100% sure exactly what happened. Uh, One account says that when he left Grant, he met up with some uh, friends who offered to take him out uh, for a bachelor party. He joined them and found himself uh, in a strange place, tied up. Supposedly, uh, the Seneca had qualms of him marrying a white woman, and they tried to stop the wedding. If you remember from our episode on Handsome Lake, for people that followed the Longhouse teachings, that was strictly forbidden to have any kind of interracial marriage was was a huge taboo. And so it's not impossible to think that some of the the Seneca could have had a problem with him going through with this just as much as uh, people in the American society did. Also, uh, we mentioned that there was starting to be people that were saying that he wasn't fulfilling his sachem duties. And it's pretty easy to picture him marrying this rich, upper-class, white, beautiful woman and not moving her to the reservation. And we're going to see that that is what's going to happen. So if that's the case, their concerns would be completely true. Uh, Another rumor, Andrew, is uh, your more traditional uh, hangover type story where he goes out, he gets hammered drunk. He's so drunk that he can't even get up the next day when the wedding is supposed to take place. And he never mentions what the reason was publicly. We can tell from letters that his friends and army officers write that they believe he probably got plastered and couldn't get up. There were stories of him in the army and even all the way back in Illinois where it wasn't that he was a habitual alcoholic, but they said that once in a while, he'd just maybe once or twice a year, he'd go on a a binge. uh, He'd be on a binge for a few days. People speculate that that's most likely what did happen. Whatever the true story was, he was able to meet with Minnie and her mother, and they obviously felt comfortable with whatever he said. And so the wedding was back on. It was going to be at the same church the following week, which was going to be Christmas Eve. This time, about 3,000 people came. And when they saw the decorations going up, they they inquired and they said, hey, what, what time is the ceremony going to take place? To which the church attendants said, oh, no, the wedding was last night. We're just decorating for the Christmas service tomorrow. Parker and his bride had had a private event obviously because of all the the media hype at the church the night before. General Grant did give Minnie away, and then Parker and his new bride left for New York City and then on to Rochester for their honeymoon. Rochester. And Caleb, <laughs> yes. Can you think of any place you'd rather take your wife on your honeymoon than Rochester? Utica? <laughs> uh, I would much rather go to Allentown, Pennsylvania. <laughs> I've been there too. Well, you got to remember, at the time, Rochester was one of the prominent cities in America. And very modern. Uh, Frederick Douglass lived there and, and did his whole publishing scheme. Susan B. Anthony was from there. Harriet Tubman ran the Underground Railroad. It was all kinds of technology was springing up. It was a, a canal city, huge industry. 
Yeah, it was it was a hot happening. And place. it was only about 70 miles from the Tonawanda Reservation as well. And Niagara Falls wasn't built up to be a tourist trap yet. So when we mentioned the book, The League of the Iroquois, it was written and published in Rochester. But it still doesn't mean you want a honeymoon there. The Genesee River just is not nice. I don't know. I don't I don't think it was nice then and it's not nice now. Anyway, we love you, Rochester. We just had a whole episode a few months ago about a Rochester movie coming out. Please, please check it out. The following year, 1868, General Grant becomes President Grant, and he begins to assemble his administration. Now we come all the way back to Ely's benefactor, Henry Morgan. Morgan had shown a strong desire for political office. Uh, Mainly, he wanted to be appointed commissioner of Indian affairs. He just, he really had a heart for the people and he thought that he could straighten things out and he thought that he was the man for the job. But in a twist of irony, Grant instead had chosen Parker from the beginning. He knew that Parker was his man. He he interviewed some other people, but it, it was just lip service. He knew all along that he wanted him for this job. And so the man that Morgan loved as a son took the one job that he wanted, and he was utterly despondent. He would never try and apply for the office again. Uh, Ely and Morgan didn't even speak to each other during uh, his tenure, but uh, Morgan would still keep in contact with Parker's family, just not with him directly. Grant did have a problem, Andrew. And that's appointing Parker to this government position. He worried that Parker couldn't legally serve because he, as you recall, he's not a citizen. And it's just so funny. This Are we coming to this again? Yes. He, he's been a brigadier general, an engineer. He's had all these government contracts, and he's not a citizen. He signed treaties on behalf of the U.S. government. Eventually, it was decided that since he didn't live on the reservation and that he had other federal jobs, he was able to hold the position. Grant nominated him for the position, and the Senate confirmed him by a vote of 36 to 12. According to my math, that's three quarters, right? A lot of these Senate-appointed positions were usually pretty close to unanimous. That's Either way, he was now the first Native person to serve as Commissioner of Indian Affairs. He was responsible for all relations between the United States and the 300,000 Indigenous people. Pretty big deal. And he quickly found that the job was no easy task. He had about 600 staff and Indian agents across the United States that worked under him. And Parker endorsed this policy of assimilation, which is, I mean, how he found success in society. I'm, I'm walking a fine line here because I know where he's coming from. I know where well-meaning people were coming from. They thought that this was the, the best way forward. They, they thought that assimilation was, was the best way. But I think that, I don't want to speak on behalf of other people, but the way that it was implemented was not conducive for people keeping their country and keeping their culture and keeping their language, which is, which is a big point. You, you can conform to American society to, to survive, but when you're conforming to, to destroy your history, that's where the, the sticking point is. And that's where he gets a lot of pushback from, from Native peoples. Because what if, what if these people he's telling to assimilate don't want to conform? 
And then the issue is, what if these tribes are not even being set up to thrive in the first place? Because they're not being given the resources they're told they're going to be given to conform. Unlike the Seneca, Andrew, a lot of the other tribes and nations had been removed by force from their land. And I think we briefly mentioned on this, but they were put in completely different climates that they weren't used to. You know, you might be used to hills and forests and all of a sudden you're in desert or rock country. It's just completely different climate and you can't just drop anything, people, animals. We need to live in the environment that we were raised. Also, these 700 employees that worked for Parker, a lot of them were corrupt. And a lot of Indian agents made a lot of money by skimming supplies and funds that were issued by the government for particular nations. And when we say a lot, we mean most. Yeah, the problem with a job like working in Indian affairs is it was very easy to not be held accountable for doing anything corrupt. The government might say, okay, go give these people 10 sets of cattle-drawn plows to help them with their modern agriculture. And then you drop off six, and then you say to to the Indians, oh, they only approved six. Or you say, you just give them six, and then when they complain and say, hey, we were supposed to get 10, it's just your word against theirs. And the majority of people, politicians and other people, just be like, whatever, he's probably telling the truth. The Indians probably sold it and were trying to rip us off or something. So in reality, there was just everything was being done like that. People were, and I said taking four, but you know, it could be taking nine plows and giving them one, one that doesn't even have like the leather harness on it. So they've got this plow with no way to hook it up. You know, and they were being set up to fail in all these situations due to corrupt people. Parker wrote that um, the desire for a job as an Indian agent meant that they had practically already made their fortune before they even started working. When you could steal the wealth of an entire tribe, it's not hard to see why there was so much corruption and when there's no accountability. So you've got these people left with lands that have no water, no way to grow food, let alone build farms that help them join the American economy. On top of that, they have no ecosystem for hunting. So some tribes would move to their new lands. They'd look around and be like, yep, nope. And they just pack up and try and find some other place. And that's where these, you start hearing, and this is where we're getting into the skirmishes you hear about and the classic cowboy and Indian movies where you, you hear about roaming bands. But why were they doing that? Because they had nowhere else to go. And even some of their land was still being squatted on. And then Grant was getting the army involved and it only made the situation worse. Parker tried to bring reforms to the bureaucracy and the whole agency was just a monster to itself. He worked with the Quakers, who it's kind of interesting that they've been players in these Indian affairs for hundreds of years. And he also worked with former army officers that he knew and he also had his brother be responsible for the New York district. So he's, he's having a Seneca in, you know, directly involved with the, the Iroquois aspects of the Indian affairs. But with all these reforms, Parker started to make enemies. All these people, this, this is their, uh, their government milk that they're all sucking up. His own underlings and some members of Congress set out to destroy him. He's turning over the apple cart. Two years into his job, he was brought up on charges that he was misusing federal funds. Isn't that always sweet that they they accuse you of the very thing that they're doing? Yes, it's always like that too. 
He was cleared of any wrongdoing, but he had enough. He resigned his office in protest in August 1871. He decided politics were not for him. By then, he had found himself despised by all these other Native nations, and even a lot of his own people began to view him as a traitor and a turncoat. He was really in a no-win situation. The Parkers moved to Connecticut, but he would end up commuting to New York City regularly, where he became, wait for this, a successful Wall Street trader? He became a stockbroker? Yeah, and he became really rich. Like, he got in the millions, apparently. It was that much? Yeah, it, he, like, he became, like, super rich. It, I don't know if it's millions then, but it's definitely, in today's money, it was in the millions. He became the equivalent of a millionaire. It's like, you wouldn't picture that that's, that's what he gets. And so, like Caleb said, just absolutely filthy rich, successful for five years when the stock market crashed in 1876 and he lost everything. It always happens like that. But Ely didn't give up. He's to have said, quote, spend no time mourning for the failures of the past. Tears make a bitter throat. Look ahead and there's more work to do, unquote. Parker found work uh, working as an engineer within the New York City Police Department. But this was a, a huge uh, demotion from the type of engineering he'd done in the past. He was much more like a desk clerk that would look over plans and things like that. Because you see, a lot of time had gone by since his time on the canal, and engineering had advanced a lot. It's railroads now. Yeah, we're in the Industrial Revolution. So he found his skills of an engineer all of a sudden weren't really sought after. He was behind, you know, we, we see it all the times with the the baby boomers now that wanted to go back to work 10 years ago and they didn't know how to use any of the computers. So even though they had master's degrees, they were completely uh, worthless to certain businesses. And that's kind of where he finds himself. He, he has this, this training, but it's just not useful to business anymore. He joined a veterans group and he would give professional speeches at events and everyone still respected him as a great orator. In 1878, after 10 years of marriage, Ely and Minnie had their first and only child, a daughter they named Maud Teresa. And in Seneca, she was called, oh, I sure hope I say this right, Awaio. Does that sound good? Awaio? Yeah. Okay, good. Which translates beautiful flower. People wrote in letters saying that she was beautiful, fair of skin, dark wavy hair. People saw her mother's brilliant eyes, but she was full of her father's spirit and energy. A friend of the family wrote in his uh, book that when he met her when she was 15, quote, the child simply loved to run. She was as fast as a deer. The hotel we stayed at had a lovely park with pavement all around it and the kids ran races. Maud could beat them all, including the boys. The kids teased her, saying that she could run so well because she was an Indian. And then she would stomp her feet and say, I'm a real American and the only one here. You seem to see this thread over and over with, uh, with them, don't you? The real American aspect? Yeah. You know, that gives some credence that maybe uh, that Lee really said that, the fact that the quote keeps coming up. In October 1884, Parker traveled to Buffalo to give a speech at the dedication of the monument to Red Jacket at the Forest Lawn Cemetery. His final years, though, Andrew, 
were not good years. He started to suffer from kidney disease, diabetes, strokes. By then, a lot of his community, particularly in the Seneca and the Iroquois community, people were viewing him as a traitor. He had moved to Connecticut, even though he was a sachem, and they felt completely neglected. And also due to the, the mismanagement in the Indy Commission, he, he got blamed for not all things, but definitely a lot of things that weren't really his fault. And to this day, his name leaves a little bit of a bad taste in some people's mouths. He's definitely a, a controversial figure. People have a lot of different opinions about him. You can't doubt that his intentions are good. That's the problem. We, we can't always judge people based on their intentions. I think most often in history, that's what it is. People have intentions and the intentions might be good, they think to themselves, but they might have serious consequences to other people. But one thing's for sure, he, he never rejected his Seneca identity. He never said, I'm not a Seneca, I'm an American citizen. He, he definitely kept that. He definitely was proud of his heritage. He would go around and give speeches about his heritage and about the laurels of the Confederacy. Well, if you want a, a white American Irishman podcaster's opinion, I would say the only real issue I have uh, is the fact that he was a sachem. I think that he had a right to live his life to the best of his ability, just like everybody does to marry who he wants, to live where he wants to live, to love who he wants to love, to work where he wants to work. So I don't think it's fair to call him a traitor to his race for accomplishing all that. But the one thing that puts a bad taste in the mouth is the fact that he accepted this position as a sachem, which is a position for life to represent and look after your people. And I can see how I would feel betrayed if I elected somebody as my sachem and he was living in Connecticut while I was over near Buffalo, New York. And he was living as a millionaire and uh, you know, in a, in a small mansion in Connecticut. Regardless, he arguably is one of the most famous Senecas in American history. And I mean, we've talked about Corn Planter and Handsome Lake and Red Jacket, and those are some very, uh, and there's a bigger list of names that we could list, but those are, those are the big ones. Most people don't know about Ely Parker, but if you do, if you've heard anything about Grant's secretary, you know about him. Uh, Civil War buffs know about him. Uh, he died in his sleep August 31st, 1895. He was about 67 years old. Uh, after his death, his wife didn't have much income. She was a veteran's widow, which means they gave her eight bucks a month. Uh, she was forced to sell most of his belongings, his letters, his book library, even the silver red jacket medal that he had inherited. Uh, but she was really saved financially when a club of military veterans offered $2,000 this is back then, $2,000 for a copy of the Appomattox Surrender Terms. Remember that thing he put in his pocket? Then Congress increased Minnie's pension to $30 a month. In 1897, she married again, but after two years, she was widowed again. And then she moved to be with her daughter, who had recently gotten married and lived with her until she died in 1932, at the age of 82. Ely was buried in Connecticut, but two years later, he was dug up and reinterned at Forest Park Cemetery. And now... You can go visit him. He's right next to Red Jacket. Whether you agree or disagree with everything, I think that it goes right along with our narrative uh, right from the start that people are people. I think we've said that a lot of times. Nobody's infallible. You can say that he did some things that were wrong, and I think a lot of people would agree with you, but I think you could 
also see that he did a lot for his people and he lived a fairly good life where he didn't seek the harm of other people. And so I hope that uh, whatever side of the fence you rest on, I think that uh, there's, there's definitely things to be admired, uh, no matter what your opinion. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. We've really appreciated uh, getting to share the life of Ely Parker with you all. Be sure to leave us an awesome review on iTunes because you're awesome people. And whenever we see you again, we plan on releasing another amazing episode. Thanks, everybody. Bye.